0: Sam Altman wants to raise trillions for a new chip company. Google's Gemini is on par with GPT-4, and that has a heap of implications for the AI world. Snap is doing layoffs and its stock is sinking. Chris Dixon's book took a sketchy route to the bestseller list. Adam Newman wants WeWork back and his return to office employed a to downsize and hold back raises. We're gonna cover that and plenty more right after this.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off.
0: Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, Friday edition, where we break down the news in our traditional cool-headed and nuanced format. We have a big week of news to cover with you. We're going to talk a little bit about my experience with the Vision Pro at the end. Before we get to that, we have big AI news, including Sam Altman looking to raise trillions of dollars for his potential chip business and what that all means so that's all coming up as always we're joined by Ron John Roy I want to welcome Ron John to the show
2: billions are no longer cool I'm only talking trillions this week Alex
0: well we're gonna live that dream very shortly I also <laughs> ve- um, just want to say a quick welcome to any new listeners that are here with us whether you came here because you saw uh, the link to the show on, on Daring Fireball and came in through Gru- Gruber's interview, or potentially you were here with the after listening to great quarter guys with the compound. For those who are here for the first time, let you know how it goes. We do these news breakdowns on Fridays, and then I have a flagship interview on the feed every Wednesday. And let's get to the first big story here, which is that Sam Altman is seeking trillions of dollars, trillions, not billions, to build a chip business and according to the wall street journal the fundraise could be in the realm of five to seven trillion dollars uh potentially coming from the uae because if you decide that you want that type of money you cannot go to private market you have to go to sovereign wealth funds ranjan when you saw this headline what did you think i was
2: completely enthralled by the word trillions because i don't think i've ever seen that in any kind of headline around a fundraising but it, it, it's certainly ambitious. Again, bringing together the UAE government, bringing together potentially the U.S. government, bringing TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, everyone into one fund, into one. It, it's still a bit unclear as, as to exactly what it would be. Would it be a company? Would it be a fund? But, but I think it, it's very important because trying to reshape the semiconductor industry around the needs of ai and generative ai it's noble it's important i think it's going to matter is this the right way to do it we'll see but but i think having this discussion is important like marrying public and private sectors in a way that actually shapes the industry in the right way it's not the worst conversation to be having why do you think it's noble Okay, maybe Noble is a, a bit of an overstatement, but I, I okay, all right, all right. I, I, take, I take back Noble. I, I'll say ambitious and important.
0: Yeah, and it was interesting because I saw that it was in the trillions of dollars, five to seven trillion, and I was like, okay, so that's like a, val- a very ambitious valuation. I mean, like the biggest companies on the public markets today are in the realm of three trillion. But no, that's the amount he wants to fundraise. So I think that, like, when I saw this, my perspective was what Sam is doing is thinking that we're going to get to a world where generative AI is going to turn into artificial general intelligence. And if you get to that point, then it totally changes the economy. And if you're going to invest in companies where that exists, then you have to change your equation. I just wonder if this is a little premature. Do you think that's the right diagnosis in terms of what he's telling these potential investors?
2: Yeah, I think... He has captured a moment. He's already captured a couple of moments. So you might as well try to reshape the entire global economy in your vision, in your and in, in a way that benefits you. So you, I mean, he might as well throw this out there right now. But I, but I, I agree. I think it's a bit premature. And I think it's he's become very good at grabbing headlines and just kind of making absurdly bold proclamations and it feels like this is another one but again i think it's an important discussion to be having about what does the semiconductor industry look like when the needs of computing are going to become so great as even not talking agi but just generally generative artificial intelligence embedded in every product we're using it's going to need to be we're going to need to think differently about it
0: Ken, who's watching live with us here on LinkedIn, wants to know if a five to $7 trillion (laughs) raise is pre-seed or Series A. John?
2: (laughs) That is the greatest comment ever, Ken, because, yeah, I I, I think, you know, nowadays, let's still be conservative and call it a good Series A. Still, pre-seed might be a bit generous here.
0: Exactly. We don't want to get ahead of our skis on this one. Series B is going to be interesting. So talking about taking advantage of the moment, so Sam Lesson, had a, who's an early Facebook employee and definitely like somebody who's like in the conversation in tech. I don't know if people are, I think I find his opinions always a little bit provocative and interesting. He weighed in on this on one of his like screenshot tweets, but I think it's worth reading. So he said, I don't grudge Sam's showmanship in and of itself. He's just extending the game that Elon has played with the self-driving cars are just around the corner or Mars by 2024 making promises and clearly absurd but exciting statement, which select for meme propagating cult following loyalists. Sam is just playing a game of one-upmanship. Start with the fear-mongering AGI, and when that runs out, let's come up with the biggest number we can think of. In an era where value is in the eye of beholder, if you anchor on trillions, maybe you get enough people to believe that hundreds of billions is the deal of a lifetime to make it all work and become too big to fail. But on the flip side, this does make me very nervous. If capitalism becomes a game of absurdities versus discipline, it's hard to argue that the invisible hand is guiding us anymore instead of a broad game of number go up with PR campaigns for dollars materialized by the government from thin air with nowhere to go other than The Magnificent Seven. I don't know, I read that, I thought that was spot on. What did you think?
2: I think that's completely spot on. I have to say also, I'm a fan of Sam Lesson's feed. I almost respect the fact that, again, as Alex had said, He takes screenshots, I think of notes or something else, and (laughs) has them as images in the tweet, and it's always incredibly hard to read. And even the fact that you can now do longer tweets, he still sticks to that format. So keep doing that, Sam, I like it. And I think that this is, okay, this is really on point. This is really good, this idea of absurdities versus discipline. And we talk and we like to think that we're moving back towards a world of discipline, but maybe this is another example that these absurdities can work, especially with fundraising. And again, I think Sam Altman has shown the, with the fear-mongering of AGI and connecting it to that, and we've talked about this a lot, that fear-monger, fear-mongering around artificial general intelligence weirdly is done by all the people who are pushing AI the furthest and stand to benefit the most economically from it. So it's always felt a little bit disingenuous when, you know, trying to make it seem like this insane, unattainable, crazy thing that only we can save you from. So give us money. It feels a little bit like that. So I like that.
0: Yeah, I do really think there's probably truth in him just trying to throw out this wild number. And if you end up with billions of dollars in funding, you're in good shape. Like, imagine if you just got the value. If you have a seven trillion dollar investment, that the what do you think the value has to be like seventy trillion? I mean, Does who's going to invest exist? the type of money and not want to ten x that? <laughs> so, like, if you get a few hundred billion and you're in the realm of Nvidia to begin with, even if it's private market, that's pretty good.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, seventy trillion market cap. I want to see. I want to see the pressure on employees to realize that.
0: I mean, seriously, it's crazy. <laughs> So, by the way, speaking of like coming back to discipline, we just hit five thousand on the S and P five hundred, which is far beyond any prediction, right? That we had in the era of rate raises. You would think this is a zero interest phenomenon. And by the way, magnificent seven is the one carrying it. I think Nvidia is up. I heard today six hundred billion on the year already. Yeah, so but I, 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 I what think you, the- yeah. What's your read there?
2: I've seen a lot around this where, you know, and as someone who's written about the absurdities of Zerp many times, um, I think the, the kind of the energy in the market is still warranted around AI. I think that's what's been pushing it. It's the companies that are the best positioned to capture value around artificial intelligence, which for better or for worse, are the magnificent seven or big tech companies. But the to me, it's always the difference was always again when the market is going up in again uh, monkey jpegs and whatever else versus yep. here's a potential fundamental reshaping of the economy that I do think will get reshaped um, and AI is a transformative once in a generation technology it's not as weird to see stocks going up so I think I think a little this is a little bit more energetic health
0: than total mania right and this was a very chill week in terms of the way that people handled the news but it was actually a monumental week in terms of advancements and the type of things that we're going to see so first of all an important part of where ai is going to go because it can't just all be chatbots right it has to be the application of this technology and where it goes beyond the chatbot and we started to get a look at where the things are going from this information article that talked about how open ai is shifting the battleground to software that operates devices and automates tasks. So instead of just having a conversation, what they're trying to do is create agents. And this is what the information says. OpenAI is developing a form of agent software to automate complex tasks by effectively taking over a customer's device. The customer could then ask ChatGPT, the ChatGPT agent to transfer data from a document to a spreadsheet for analysis or to automatically fill out expense reports and enter them in accounting software those kind of requests would trigger the agents to perform the clicks, cursor movements, text typing, and other actions humans take as they work within different apps. What did you think when you heard this news? I think this is
2: exactly where things have needed to go. I mean, again, as it's going to be tax season soon, or already is if you're responsible, the absurdity of trying to fill out your taxes or use TurboTax when all that stuff should be AI-driven like anyways, I think embedding AI into all these existing apps, processes, tasks, that's where this is supposed to be going, and it should go. Whether open AI is going to be able to be the one that does it, I, I still, and I think we've covered this a bunch, I think it's going to be the companies themselves, the tools themselves, the software themselves that actually get a handle on being able to use even potentially open source models to do this automation, rather than one central company, especially OpenAI, uh, being the one that figure this out be- figures this out. Because a lot of this stuff has so much complexity and nuance, or even getting an autonomous agent from OpenAI to work with all of your backend systems, it's it's a tough thing. It's not just AI. It's, you know, it's it's building software. So I think OpenAI, I think it's good that they're moving the industry in this direction, but I don't think they're going to be the ones that actually figure it out.
0: So this is my point of skepticism here. For my book, Always Day One, my first chapter is all about the rise of robotic process automation and how that could change the work world. And I think that's taken off to a certain extent, but not in the way that some of the companies involved in it, like UiPath hoped. And basically what robotic process automation was almost exactly that, that your a robot would take over your computer and figure out exactly how to do, the, do your work and you would sit back and it would, it would figure it out for you. And you know what? Maybe it was that the actual UI, right? was too difficult to train something to build this. And if you could conversationally instruct a bot to do something, that would be different. But I'm curious, Ranjan, what you think, because I'm sure you've heard about this. Is there a way that the AI, generative AI, can sort of pick up where this uh, robotic process automation left off and make it easier for people and hence give it a chance to be more mainstream?
2: Oh, one hundred percent. I think RPA walked so generative AI could fly. I think, like, <laughs> I think. Oh, I was, I was working on that one. Oh, that's well, um, gonna be. will uh, be the title <laughs> of the
0: episode, of course.
2: I think no, but 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 RPA or robotic process automation was you have to instruct every step and every level of any kind of process. So the work, the uplift in getting that done, I actually think probably did not create enough value for people to invest enough in it. But the promise of generative AI and already the realization of it is that it can just with natural language, it can already understand what that process needs to be. It can be trained a lot easier. It can be queried a lot easier by anyone. They don't need to learn an entire new process. They can just simply ask in natural language questions. Um, So yeah, I think that It's like such a leap in technology that I'm still very, very bullish that all those annoying, repetitive, automated things that we all do on a daily basis in our work, those are exactly the things that are going to get successfully automated. And then I think it's a good thing. I think it certainly opens up lots of conversations around what jobs look like and how the economy changes. But I think that's where it's going.
0: Yeah. OpenAI has to figure this out. Not only are they getting into it, but they have uh, you know, a bunch of ex-Google employees who are also starting companies around generative agents. Like This is definitely going to be a field that people concentrate in. And I've argued in the past, and I really stand by it, that OpenAI is in the hits business, that it has to keep developing new initiatives like these agents. Otherwise, it's just going to be basically overtaken by the competition. And this week, we really saw that happen where Google released this Gemini model that we've heard so much about, and they put it into BARD or which is now called Gemini. And this is the big headline that I took from it, which is that it's not that it exceeded GPT-4, which is OpenAI's model, but it equaled it. And this is from Ethan Mollick, former guest of the show. He says um, basically his takeaway is that GPT-4 Spark is not unique to OpenAI. But it's something that might often happen with scale right and that's crucial it's not unique and it might often happen with scale effectively there's nothing special about what open ai built um of course it's special but there's nothing like uniquely special about it it can be replicated and it will be replicated and google has replicated it and that means that this stuff gets commoditized and it, the prices come down and the amount of money that you can make off of off of it is limited And it gets diffused through a bunch of different companies. I thought that was the big part of the Google News this week. How did you read it?
2: I this was a happy moment for me because (laughs) two things one we that's exactly what we've been talking about for months now that the actual technology is going to get commoditized so how well it integrates into wherever you already are working is the way this is going to go and for google that's a natural advantage that every google cloud customer every google workspace user is going to much more easily integrate generative ai into what they're already doing because there are it's where they already are So I've always thought that that's where it's gonna go. I'm more excited that, for once, Google showed that they can actually get their shit together and instead of having Bard, Duet AI in Google Workspace, Duet AI in Google Cloud, I don't even know what other products they had in the day I space. They're actually calling everything Gemini. It's gonna be goodness. Gemini workspace. And we talked about this. We said Bard <laughs> should be renamed Gemini is so much better. It's such yeah. a better name. I, I could feel confident being like, oh yeah, I Gemini that I saw that on Gemini saying Bard just was such a weird thing to try to say. So, so I think Google Sundar is is showing he can make some moves still and uh i think this is big news for google
0: and another interesting thing that malik pointed out was basically there's enough differences between the two and bard is i mean, sorry gemini is better at some things than gpt4 and so his another takeaway was the ai wave has encrusted and the next move from OpenAI might be releasing the rumor gpt4 or gpt5 So basically, you know, there's another, oh, now he says there's another company with an LLM that can compete with OpenAI's most advanced model, but we're, we're not at the end. And I think that's, that's definitely true that there's going to be better stuff that we're going to see. Maybe they all become customers of Sam Altman's $70 trillion chip company, and they can develop cooler (laughs) shit. But, you know, in the near term, at least like we're not done yet.
2: But I, I actually disagree with this because, to me, the complexity of the model or how advanced it is isn't where the the battleground for me. It's again smaller models that can actually work and integrate into your mm-hmm. existing software. I think I actually think that's where it's going to go. I think it's on-device computing, and which Apple is going to get very interesting around. I think I think it, getting to GPT five almost doesn't matter to me because I think the competition can still even a lot of people are still building on GPT 3.5 and building really interesting and good experiences so so I think how advanced things are it's good that there's another model on par but I actually don't even think that's where where it really matters
0: that sounds yeah that sounds plausible so plausible uh, another thing it. that that Sundar talked about I mean he, Sundar Pichai spoke a bunch this week which is unusual for him he's like the quietest big tech CEO as far as speaking publicly. And he told Wired something really interesting about what his vision is for where this thing goes, like whether this is going to replace Search. So he said, as Search evolved, as mobile came in and user interactions changed, we adapted to it. In some cases, we're leading users, as we are with multimodal AI. But I want to be flexible about the future, because otherwise, we'll get it wrong. And I think this is an important point. There, there's there been a lot of talk even here about how this is gonna revolutionize search on the web and how it might replace search on the web. And I think maybe I'm saying this after having spoken with Aravin from Perplexity. And so I'm eager for people to listen to that, story, that, that interview next week, but I really don't. Th- and I think Sundar is leaving open the possibility that AI doesn't change search, does not change search. And I'm leaving open that possibility as well in my mind, because you know we've been talking about this forever as a search replacement but it actually could be a completely different action right whereas searches i need to find something on the web and this generative ai is i need to explore my curiosity or talk with a document like it's not naturally one-to-one or a replacement for search's functionality and i think it's actually been overestimated that it is and then if that's the case what is google so i'm curious what you think about that idea I'm happy
2: they recognize it. I would disagree because I actually, I have started to replace, I don't want to say all of my search, but the majority of my search now starts on, I have the chat GPT mobile app, I have perplexity and I have Microsoft Copilot next to each mm-hmm. other on the homepage of my phone. And I start almost, I basically start every search on one of those three when I'm on my phone. Um, I think, trying to find information, it's really because, and maybe it's a function of Google search having become so bad that it actually starts to just work better. Um, I think in app search, like for shopping Amazon, that's, that's kind of like a completely different animal but I still think it, that's another, you know, uh, problem for Google that they've already been facing and that's been developing. So I think it does fundamentally change search. I think the generation side of it versus the informational retrieval side of it, that's, again, a whole different area that is going to create completely new user experiences and ways of just doing things. But but I still I think it's both. I think it both will fundamentally change search and it's gonna create completely new user behaviors which we don't understand yet.
0: Well, I, I guess like I'll push back and say, I'm, let's just table this and pick it up next week after the hour of an interview goes live and we can kind of pick apart some of his his right, ideas. I'm excited for that, Yeah, yeah. Because, and it just is something where Google can be left in this like really weird place, even worse than it is now where it's like, you can't be like, if they're two distinct things, you can't be search and and generative ai at the same time like you you kind of live in both worlds and if you're trying to have one foot in both worlds then i don't know if you have an identity and that'll be i think the biggest question for google over the next few years no matter what happens is what its identity is because it's getting quite murky right now
2: oh i i 100 agree with that i think Google, as a traditional search company, is not traditional search will not be the future, and mm. they recognize it, they know it. But when that is the vast, vast majority of your business that you have a monopoly on, it's going to force you to change, and it's going to be really hard to change internally. And it's the classic Clayton Christensen innovators' dilemma. So, I think, uh, I think that it's going to be interesting. I think for them i mean you know everyone always goes back to the reed hastings and netflix classic pivot where you know dvd by mail was the cash cow of their business but they made the courageous decision to switch to streaming and go all in on it and it worked is Google gonna make that kind of same, similarly courageous decision? They they don't have no the way. track record of doing that. Okay, all right, you said it yeah. more definitively than I did. They don't have a track record on that, but this is the moment they
0: have to. It's not only gonna uh, you know be something that Google faces, it'll be something that Apple faced. And that's something I spoke with Gruber about and something that was in big technology this week, which is that you really have this incumbency problems in lots of places where you have successful products like for Apple. You know, we talked about the Rabbit R- R1, right, which was this yeah. AI device that sits on top of apps. You know, Apple last we um they tease that they have a big AI announcement coming later this year and like analysts like Gene Munster said, "Oh, Tim Cook has said the magic letters and, you know, I'd like to welcome you to the AI generative AI freight train." Well, Google's also on that generative AI freight train and it's a freaking bumpy ride. So, you know, are they going to then take the iPhone, for instance, and make it all like a Siri large language model versus the traditional operating system? No, you can't do that. So there, there will be very interesting challenges for big tech incumbents as, as this stuff moves further.
2: If Siri became my primary UI and interface to all computing, I would throw out every computer and phone I have. And I mean, for Apple, just fix Siri to start, just get it on par, even with Alexa. Just, and I say that as someone- Like
0: that's a priority for them this year.
2: I hope so, but (laughs) as someone who recently changed Mm -hmm. my entire smart home setup to the HomePod, it's a bu- it is truly a bumpy ride, so just fix Siri guys. that's all yeah. I ask.
0: I had this in our document last week after earnings and it's a little bit of a provocative thought to share so and we were talking Vision Pro last week so I didn't want to bring it up because I could have been a whole can of worms but I'm just gonna throw it out there for the two of us Go right for it. Google's currently sitting at 1.8 trillion dollars. Meta is at 1.2 trillion dollars market cap. If Meta surpasses Google, can Sundar Pichai survive as the CEO of Google?
2: I don't think so. I think Sundar is probably in a pretty precarious situation right now. I mean, the the overarching narrative around him is it's like you know optimizer, very good at just kind of growing things from one hundred to one hundred fifty, but not from zero to one. So I think. As you as your reaction was when I said, can he make the courageous pivots needed to, uh, <laughs> to get Google where they are? He doesn't have the reputation for it. Maybe he will kind of show that visionary side of him, but it's also interesting because Tim Cook had that similar reput- reputation for a while, especially after Steve Jobs, that he was an operator and not a visionary. And I feel he's starting to get out of that, especially we'll see with the Vision Pro, but But yeah, whether, I think if Meta continues showing, especially in advertising, they're now gonna be bigger than Google potentially. I think that's not a good sign for Sundar's job.
0: here's the thing about Sundar and Tim Cook. Maybe they are quite similar in terms of, you know, the way that they lead optimizer and, and, you know, focus on efficiency and incremental improvements. The thing is, and this is what Grunberg mentioned, Tim Cook has not faced a challenge to his core product. The phone is the phone. The phone is sort of the end product, the end state, whereas like now Sundar is seeing search get challenged by generative AI. And that is a big deal.
2: Yeah, no, no, I think I I completely agree. This is going to be it's funny because each week we talk about how the Magnificent Seven and big technology companies are are completely entrenched. Ken yeah. Young here in the comments had actually asked, could the dominance of Fang be shaken up with interest in AI? So yeah, I think uh, on one hand, they're more entrenched than ever, but it's also, it's an interesting time because on the other, their dominance or their incumbency, as you said, also poses probably the biggest kind of organizational challenge for all of these companies.
0: Now this, this again, might be a bit of heresy, but in a lot of private conversations the people who are plugged in that i speak with when they talk about Sundar, they say that guy likely isn't long for that job but yet i haven't seen any coverage asking about like how safe Sundar Pachai is like i've not seen one report about that of course alphabet's doing you know they i just checked because i was thinking about about digging into it they did hit their all-time highs in the stock market earlier this year so you know that's if that's the measuring stick they're they're in good shape but you look at where the competition's going and you sort of wonder. I'm curious why you think we haven't seen any deeper questioning of Sundar's position in this in this role.
2: Well, but Google Cloud as a business very strongly responded to Mm -hmm. Amazon Web Services, Google Workspace very strongly responded to Microsoft Office. So I think they've shown they can basically copy very well, Um, but they haven't shown any kind of like completely new innovation. We are, this is, I've had a lot of conversations around this is like, you know, like what was their last great innovation? You know, maps, YouTube, all these things just kind of keep going on as just, you know, almost relics of their past self, but uh, yeah, I think that is interesting. I agree, maybe it becomes more of a conversation, but it's hard to have that conversation when a stock is at an all time high, so.
0: Exactly. Yeah, there might be a story to do on it. Well, we'll see. Speaking of Google's big innovations, uh I have a feed drop coming on on the feed on Monday, which is for for a new podcast called Building One by the uh, Chief Product Officer of LinkedIn, Tomer Cohen, and he interviews the co-founder of Canva, and apparently this guy was an early uh person working on Google Wave. <laughs> so Google Wave. Remember that Wave? I so Tom- love it. Yeah, <laughs> Go some, ahead.
2: Some of the, it, it's not quite Google plus, but Google wave was definitely one of my favorite. Was that like 2011, 2012, where that you. That feels
0: would, right in the pocket.
2: It was kind of a Twitter clone, if I remember, but. No, you, like, it was post- like a
0: this collaborative place where people could like type and move images and um, put videos. It was a, like a, basically like a, a co-worker, like a, almost like Figma. Like there was Google docs for everything, collaborative workspace. Uh,
2: could have been Google way. I mean, that's one of the th- things you imagine is pretty tough and it is that problem of incumbency because you can totally picture, they like Miro or you know collaborative whiteboarding tools if you've ever used them, but Figma even like that whole idea of like real time collaborative work, which they have nailed with Google Docs and Sheets and stuff being able to work together in real time. But, but you can imagine that kind of product, that's a problem when you have how many billions of users that to show genuine traction, you don't probably have the time to innovate and actually find something that's going to really stick. You're either having to hit insane numbers early on or it just gets folded into wherever and then gets killed off eventually.
0: Yeah. So, folks, stay tuned for that feed drop coming on Monday. Tomer and I talk for like 10 minutes right before the episode starts just about, you know, what he's trying to do with the show, but also about this Google Wave thing and about how he thinks about generative uh, product product management with with generative AI, so that's something to keep an eye out for. Now, the this week was also interesting. There was this um, leaked, well, there was this faked robocall from President Biden uh, telling voters that they should abstain from voting in the in the um, in the primary elections. And um, soon on the heels of that, the FCC banned AI generated robocalls. So it's interesting that we're we're starting to see some pushback towards this AI generated stuff. I mean, I think that there they were already AI generated robocalls that were like hitting the market, but to see the government take action on them is quite interesting. What what did you make of this?
2: Yeah, I think because again, the main difference is how are they really going to be able to tell? Even finding who originally created and paid for the robocall is almost nearly impossible. So I think the more important thing was sending a signal that you will be prosecuted. This fits into, you know, uh, there's like a three decade old law aimed at curbing junk phone calls and it fits under that. It's a clarification around that. So I think we're going to see in this election year a lot of very, very intense, strong action around this kind of stuff. Again, how easy is it to enforce is another question. But I think at least in 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 the letter of the law, it's going to be spelt out pretty clearly.
0: It's interesting seeing the government take action on tech. It's like we've had these two side by side pictures of effective government and ineffective government, the big tech hearings and then these smaller moves from agencies where you're actually seeing them do things. Uh, this is one example. And then there's also the the FTC, which has had a mixed record of success, um, but has really been on the war path trying to block uh, mergers. And I don't know if it was them or European regulators, but basically, um, there was a, a significant block merger recently that we've been meaning to talk about, which is that apple uh, Amazon wanted to acquire iRobot, which is the maker of Roomba, and then basically decided to walk away from the deal. So, what can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, I think overall, we've seen the climate has changed, and there's going to be a lot more scrutiny over all MA. And I think that's a good thing. I think that was, you know, that's one of the reasons we're still sitting here, and the Magnificent Seven have just an incredible amounts of market power. But I, I think it's, yeah, M and A is definitely an area where uh, the government has been successful in the last couple of years. There's been some big, you know, like notable losses, but overall, uh, the entire climate has changed, and I think that's a good thing.
0: Well, let's talk about whether that's successful or not. Because, um, so the CEO of iRobot uh, lost their job because of this. iRobot also took, uh, they, they are gonna lay off 350 employees, 31% of the work of the workforce. They are a mess internally now after being, you know, waiting to be acquired. And this is a problem for companies that like make plans. They go through these lengthy processes and they can't eventually close the deal and the same is going to happen with figma by the way which just yep. like got closed out of this adobe deal like the company spent months or more than a year waiting for it to close both of them and all the plans put on hold you know people figuring out what they're going to do for work maybe just chilling like you don't want to advance too much you don't want to change the product too much you know as you wait for this approval and so i'm curious if you think the word success is the right word to use. Like, oh, yes, I think those... it's a hundred
2: percent the right word to use because, yeah, the New York Times had a long piece that was really good actually just yesterday around what the culture and feel is at Figma right now. And again, they had, it was supposed to be a $20 billion deal. And then internally Figma just reset its valuation to 10 billion. So you can right. imagine you're an employee sitting there. You thought you were going to just have some insane windfall. And now it's not as insane. It's probably still pretty good for most employees, especially early ones. But it, I agree, it, it completely changes the calculations and the whole culture about how companies just approach their product and approach their work. And I think it's a success because I think it's a good thing. I think, like, if companies were built around not actually continuing to figure out how to better serve customers and innovate and instead we're just trying to figure out how to cash out you're seeing it in real time like as you said if you know people are just kind of spending months and then not really doing anything in the hopes. And we all know if Figma <laughs> was acquired by Adobe, it would just go out to die, to go out to pasture. So, I mean, I think I think it's a good thing. And it, it, we it, it's a reminder that a lot of the kind of downstream effects of this are longer term, because for each one of those stories, that means that at somewhere, some M&A lawyer and some investment banker talking to some CEO are not gonna start that process in rather than starting it. And exactly. I think that's where you see the like it's you can't almost measure a lot of the times with Lena Khan and the F D C or even around the Department of Justice, there's like kind of like win loss scorecards. But I think un- unless you look at the aggregate, it's it's tough to paint the whole picture. And then that's shit taking shape right now.
0: And they will diverge, right? Because you'll have some company, like a lot more companies will decide not to go the M and A route, right? So their real chance of an exit is an IPO, and some of them will make it there and be worth probably three or four or five times what they were going to make as an acquisition. Like think about Instagram, for instance, if they had to go the IPO route, they would be worth so much more than the billion that that. Uh, met and a social for
2: them. media might be good right now if Instagram actually. But <laughs> there's also going to be
0: companies that will just kind of fizzle because they can't get there. So it's like taking away this this very important piece, you know, potential exit, and then it, will investors continue to fund? So I think there's very complicated second order effects. I,
2: I think you just described healthy capitalism to me, but
0: <laughs> rather so, than catch and kill M&A. Yeah. Well, I'm not advocating for catch and kill. Okay, I, I hear your criticism, Ranjan. All right, I'll give you this round. <laughs> <laughs> All right. uh, Speaking of healthy capitalism uh, and unhealthy companies, want to talk about Snap. I mean, the company uh, not only laid off 10% of the workforce or said it was going to, but when they reported earnings, which missed in some categories and had light guidance, they blamed the war in the Middle East, which is, I think, a pretty poor excuse, uh, given when you saw Meta's numbers, right? Uh, They didn't have any problem with that. Um, Anyway, the stock dropped 30% in a day.
2: Yes, Snap. I'm going to say some bullish things about them in a second, but I think their earnings report did not clearly did not please the market. It's down th- over 30 percent since right before the earnings, though it ran up a good amount after earning, and Meta's earnings, and I, I think everyone was hoping that they would kind of have the same. Meta had, I believe it was tw- 20 24 percent ad revenue growth year on year, whereas Snaps was up 5 percent. Um, But it's an interesting time. Like one thing I wanted to highlight about Snap that was interesting, and it was the first time they really addressed this, and I think this is a really important thing both for them, because they were kind of the poster child, is stock-based compensation. That they were the, like in the first three quarters of last year, they generated $3.2 billion of revenue and issued $1 billion in stock-based compensation, or SBC. And SBC, the the weird part of it is it's a non-cash expense, so it's been used by lots of tech companies, in you know varying degrees of absurdity, where you know you you have a certain amount of, amount of cash outlay, and then you give everyone else shares, and it's it's part of the tech industry in general, and it's part of a lot of jobs in general that we all expect now, but you use it so aggressively that you're basically not paying people; you're just issuing stock because that doesn't come out of your profit, like your EBITDA does not reflect stock-based compensation. So this is the first time where they actually openly acknowledged that that is an issue and that they would be cutting down in the amount of stock based compensation they issue. And I think that that at least was a good sign that they recognized they need to be more disciplined around it. I mean, the whole advertising business of theirs is another conversation. But I think it was an important moment, because that's the first time I've seen a company openly acknowledge it as maybe problematic with not calling it directly problematic, but at least saying, we're working on this.
0: Is that your bullish statement on, on Snap? Or?
2: <laughs> well, clearly, I'm in line with the market on this one. But no, no, <laughs> okay, what was bullish for me was I think they're still at a really interesting position right now because they have not figured out direct response advertising like Facebook or Meta, they, they haven't. Everyone was hoping they had in the same way in the last year and we, it, Meta has such an advantage in terms of first party data because Snap always was, we're not, they, they have a whole new ad campaign, we're not social media, they're not a data siphoning, data collection, thing a machine in the same way facebook is so they can't create their own first-party data-driven advertising model in the same way facebook can but again daily active users was up 10 percent which i thought was interesting and still for me to and it was barely mentioned in the earnings call seven million snapchat plus subscribers we've talked about this a lot mm-hmm. when you're getting seven million gen z's to pay for your product that is mostly, that would be free in any other platform. I think that's interesting. And then the whole idea that we've talked about that as a generative AI platform, people are paying for quirky little Gen AI features that if they become kind of the, the gateway to Gen AI for every single user, I think maybe they start to move as a non-advertised based platform, which starts to get interesting, but they're, they're certainly not there yet.
0: Right. Yeah. I saw the stock uh, the stock drop and just thought like, oh man, like this might be a good buying opportunity for Snap. And I didn't do it for two reasons. One is I don't invest directly in the companies that I cover. Uh, but even if I did, they're still remar- remarkably higher, maybe 25% higher than they were in October. <laughs> so last year. So they they did have this huge drop, but I think you're totally right to point out that it was uh, in, in front of a run-up. But I am bullish on them. Like I, I know that Uh, they are getting more serious about figuring out the ad stuff. And I think that over time they will.
2: Yeah. I also, when you look at the layoffs, one thing that I thought was pretty interesting was there was like the uh, SVP of content. It was a lot of people who had content in their title. And if you've used Snap Spotlight, it's pretty garbage relative to uh, certainly a TikTok or if Meta figured out Instagram Reels really well, that I think whatever they were trying to do with in-app content apart from the messaging and they they have big numbers that spotlight views are up x percent and i think it's like 175 million people a day engage with spotlight or whatever it is but if you use the app you quickly realize they have not figured out content yet so the fact that there were a lot of the layoffs were around that i think maybe and competitively trying to compete on Reels and TikTok and everyone else who went into YouTube shorts, maybe they're realizing they're not going to win that battle.
0: Yeah. I saw you added me on Snapchat this week where you just kind of exploring did. the product or what was, <laughs> what was the story behind that, John?
2: No, no. I, I actually use Snapchat with a few friends. I yeah. do.
0: I think it's amazing. So when I was doing my story on Snapchat plus, I redownloaded it. I hadn't had it on my phone for a while. I redownloaded it and wanted to see what it was all about. And uh, my wife and I use it all the time now. Just sending those stickers and stuff is fun.
2: No, no, it's just a much better, more fun messaging app than the rest out there, which is, and, yeah. and again, I mean, I'm old. Like everyone I know who's younger, they still live on it. So that's where I think, again, in terms of user engagement for something that's not built to be addictive, the stickiness of it, the increasing daily active user side of it, like it is a million. Great, yeah, it's a great product that has a lot of people who love using it. The only difference is they have not figured out direct response advertising.
0: So speaking of CEOs, Evan Spiegel, of course, has uh, disproportionate control of that company, um, same way that Zuckerberg has of Facebook, Meta. Um, Snap is down fifty eight point nine five percent from its first day of trading. If Evan Spiegel did not have that control, do you think he would be out? I know th- this is always
2: the this is all a really interesting question for me because. I still think, we were having this whole conversation in this episode about kind of operator versus visionary CEO. He's shown time and time again to be on the visionary side of things. I think like Snap, I mean, again, the whole metaverse thing, they've owned augmented reality to the point where no one even considers them augmented reality, even though everyone's using AR in their app all day with lenses. Like At so many levels, even disappearing chats, even the whole stories format that they led the way on every one of those product innovations. They, they just never found their operator. And right. I, I agree. I think the fact that he's gotten away without finding that operator is definitely a problem of super voting power and super voting structures. And Zuckerberg has always actually found the right way in the end, whereas Spiegel hasn't. So yeah, I think his job would have been a lot more threatened let's say versus uh others if without that
0: hey well cheryl sandberg's a free agent so that would be just the move. saying just that saying. would be the move make and the she call could, evan she,
2: wait no and she could rehabilitate her image completely because snap's whole thing is we are not addictive social media so she could make amends for all the ills that the addictive social media side caused and then she'll run for president and that's the story
0: the snap, Snapchat president. All right, folks, you yeah. heard it here first. the no, president gonna... of the United, United States. United yeah, no, States. I'm saying the yeah. first Snapchat president.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Got it.
0: <laughs> Could happen. All right. Let's take a quick break. We have plenty more to cover. We'll be back right after this.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days. All showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
2: From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast.
0: Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast Friday edition. We have a bunch of stories left to cover. Um, let's briefly touch upon Chris Dixon's book, Read, Write, Own. Um, So this is a book basically extolling the virtues of crypto and telling uh, diehards that it ain't over yet, folks. Um, So look, I I think I should just share like the backstory here because I've mentioned it once or twice on the show. But uh, Chris Dixon's reps uh, pitched not one, but two of them pitched me on having him on the show. I said, yeah, bring him on. You know, obviously it's not going to be easy questions, uh, but we'll do it. And they pulled out i guess like they went on so many friendly shows that they decided they didn't want to face any tough questions and i'm starting to see why Uh, because when you look at some of the reviews that have come out about this book um it's pretty rough and he is of course like the person leading the crypto push at Andreessen Horowitz and i'm going to say this before i start reading some of the some of the reviews like I still think that we can see, we already know that blockchain is, is starting to be used in places. I still think that we can see applications built on top of this uh, technology. But, I, but my bottom line here is that and is that I think that crypto just needs better spokespeople than Andreessen Horowitz and Chris Dixon. And that this guy is doing a disservice to this entire um, era, like wave of technology. So this is from uh, Molly White, who reviewed the book. Um, So she says there's part four here and now, and then there's part five, uh, what's next? The name part four suggests that he will perhaps lay out a list of blockchain products, projects that are currently successful solving real problems. That may be why part four is precisely four and a half pages long. And rather than name any successful projects, Dixon instead spends his few pages excoriating the casino projects that he said has given uh, crypto a bad rap. In fact, throughout the entire book, Dixon fails to identify a single blockchain project that has either successfully provided a non-speculative service at any kind of scale. The closest he ever comes is when he speaks about uh, how for decades technologists have dreamed of building a grassroots uh, internet access provider, and that's something called helium that may or may not be turning out. I mean, like the whole thing that's going on in this book is him plugging A16Z projects um, which have not had a great track record, and basically Molly... (laughs) ties up her review saying this whole thing should have been a blog post.
2: Always the greatest thing to read after writing a book, I'm sure. But yeah. I uh yeah, I think for me it's just I want uh, the only reliable narrators right now on blockchain are people who did not absurdly enrich themselves during the last few run ups. And I think this is like again another example that it's difficult to take it seriously when you know, lamenting for the current, for the past few years about people, you know, uh, and casino projects and cri- crypto getting a bad rap when you made too much money on it just makes it difficult. And the moment, just just one successful project—that's all I ask.
0: And now here's my my favorite part of the whole thing. So Chris Dixon was on X talking about how well the book did and that it was number nine on the New York Times bestseller and number twenty-five on some other list. And if you look at the bestseller list, there's a dagger next to the book, a dagger symbol. And what does the dagger mean? And this is from vice. The dagger icon indicates as the times helpfully explains that the bulk purchases were, that bulk purchases were included in that count put that put the book on the list. Um, and basically it comes out that a lot of entries in Horowitz portfolio companies built and bought, uh, in some cases more than a thousand books, which helped this book get on the list. Um, and I just thought it was kind of poetic, right? Just this something that appears to be big and successful on its front and really want you to get behind it. And it turns out that behind the scenes, it was like a, a lot of manipulation and smoke and mirrors to make it seem to be more than it was. Just like. A lot down. of what Andreessen has, <laughs> has been telling us. I, Look,
2: I, I, I learned about mm-hmm. the dagger icon, and that was my favorite thing this week that I learned about. Yeah, that I didn't know about it either. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that that, and I was just I had been reading that it's called the dagger of death in the publishing industry, but basically, (laughs) yeah, basically, is a sign to readers that this is on here, but it probably shouldn't be. So I kind of love that the New York Times has recognized this and is not afraid to bring the dagger of death to their own list when they have to base it on sales.
0: Yeah, now look, I I, you know since we're we are like a nuanced show, like I'll say that. You know, potentially, uh, I don't know, my feelings on this could be influenced by the fact that Dixon pitched and then decided to bail. Uh, but I also think that everything that we're saying here is like true and I would have no problem saying it to his face either.
2: Well, I respect that you acknowledge that, but I think I, I have to agree with you here.
0: Yeah, and there was a comment uh, that I that, uh, got on X when I tweeted the, um, the Times bestseller thing it was uh, it, it, it basically this person saying, "Is it really newsworthy that a book got on the NY Times bestsellers list? Is it newsworthy trying to discredit book sales?" There is a real there's real tech to report, but technophobes advice are are, are, are petty. I think that that is a good point. However, if you look at the you know all the different frauds and the pump and dump and the schemes, and the follow follow me everything's going to work out type of stuff that has been extolled by. You know a lot of the scam merchants in crypto like the fact that this big book about the crypto industry um the, the web3 in particular you know ended up being kind of scammed it's scamming its way onto the bestseller list like yeah that's freaking newsworthy man
2: yeah i think especially given it covers crypto and how you tied the two together i think that's newsworthy
0: yeah. all right so look if people have different opinions like i'm definitely willing to hear them um just email me at alex at big technology.com and, and i'll happily uh, ha- I will happily read what you have to say, respond, and you know potentially read it on air next week. But figured that was you know worth covering. Oh my God, I'm just looking at our next story on the list. You see this? So so speaking of crypto, FTX is going to um, fully repay customers, <laughs> and about basically like they they will not give them like the additional gains they would have gotten since the exchange collapse, but they will be able to repay them in full. And I think part of that is because Bitcoin is now at forty-five thousand. So clearly, like this crypto wave is not. Oh my God! It's now forty-seven thousand. <laughs> it, it went up to two thousand. So clearly, the crypto wave is not over. Like, there's going to be a second wind here. Uh, but it is kind of interesting to see to see where this thing is moving.
2: Yeah, I, I I'm w- sitting on the sidelines and watching closely, and we also waiting for whatever the next SBF uh, SBF news is.
0: Oh yeah. So I think we'll probably, so we we teased about having Zeke Fox on. uh, I think he will come on uh, the week of Sam Bankman-Fried sentencing. So people should keep an eye out for that. I'm excited about that one. That's in late March. Um, Do you own any crypto?
2: No. Okay. I did. I have multiple times and multiple iterations, but yeah, not at the moment.
0: I just bought some Bitcoin for the first time in a while when I opened up uh, Robinhood before I interviewed Vlad. I was like, oh, crypto, let's do that. So
2: <laughs> all right, there you go.
0: So I am up. <laughs> uh another interesting story, it feels like we're like rolling the clock back, but Adam Newman is trying to buy WeWork again. Adam Newman is trying to buy WeWork again. His
2: real estate company, Flow Global, which they'd raised, I think, yeah, 350 million from A16Z, everything is connected today, is uh had sent a letter that they're working with Third Point Capital, Dan Loeb's fund, that would try to help finance a tra- transaction to get out of out of bankruptcy. To me, there's two great parts of this story. One, Adam Newman back looking at WeWork after enriching himself to $1 billion, or I think it might have even been 1.7, as the company went into bankruptcy, and that they would have to basically work out terms with SoftBank, who lost $16 billion, I believe it was total, um, that was poured into it. So that's already great. The other thing I found fascinating, Alex Spiro was the lawyer involved in this, Alex Spiro is Elon Musk's lawyer whose name and quotes end up in every single Delaware story, SEC, Elon Musk story. So, uh, and he also apparently represents Jay-Z. I think he might low-key be one of the most fascinating people in tech that no one has really ever, I don't know what he looks like. That would be a great
0: profile, honestly. Yeah. Maybe I should write that one
2: i i mean come on elon he and he's like elon musk's attack dog basically in Mm -hmm. anything any legal story he's the only one that's quoted he's always super aggressive but clearly people i mean he's doing a good job when you're not only getting hired by elon musk but adam newman and jay-z yeah
0: it seems like these folks really know how to do the legal stuff pretty well Um, yep do you have a, a couple minutes to talk about the return to office stuff yeah. Or do you have let's, a heart out here?
2: Let's let's do a couple of minutes on IBM, because okay. who better to end a conversation about big tech than the original big tech?
0: Right. So basically, IBM has told managers, you got to move near an office or you have to leave the company. And uh, this is from Bloomberg. IBM delivered a company-wide ultimatum. Uh, yeah, basically telling people that better get back. All U.S. managers must immediately report to an office or a client location at least three days a week regardless of current work location status. And that badge and data will be used to assess individual presence, right? IBM to me is just the tip of the spear here. There are so many companies that are telling their employees, they better get back to the office or they are not gonna get raises, they're gonna be laid off, they're not gonna get promotions, all this stuff. And I had a friend I was talking to about who's going through this and he goes like we've, and they don't work at Meta, but like they use the year of efficiency term basically he said, We've gone from year of efficiency to the year of douchebags. And like, I wonder if this is like the flip side of earnings, Ranjan, because, you know, we're seeing great all time highs, record profitability, companies talking about how they're making more money with less people. And they are trying to find ways to find margin. And is this a way this return to office thing, a way for them to like, get out of having to pay higher compensation, figuring out who to lay off uh and trying to make those those mar- margins higher and, and deliver for wall street i'm curious if you think it is a ploy because i i do
2: oh i 100 think i i wouldn't even use the word ploy which is kind of cynical i think it's pretty direct i think mm-hmm. it's it's explaining to people and and i also think that again the whole work remotely return to office work from home debate i think especially bigger firms, it's clear which direction majority of firms are moving and that's return to office. I tend to end up on the being in office is a good thing in many ways. Um, and I think that it, it these companies hired too many people during COVID. So all of those, the fact that, it, I mean, it is the single worst sign for a worker sitting comfortably remotely um, when record profits are up while layoffs are happening, because it just showed that a lot of the workers were extraneous, and and we talked about this a lot, and I would say this is probably one of the few times where normally I might be critical of big technology companies where I don't feel bad for them, but I think having seen how comfortable a lot of workers were are at a lot of these companies over the last few years. There was endless rest invest stories or people kind of having side jobs while getting paid 400K or whatever it was. Like it, we all, it was, it was kind of not even an unwritten secret, but a written one in the tech industry that these were very comfortable places to work and then they're just not going to be as comfortable right now.
0: Wait, you think the very act of being at home is effectively slacking off? No, no, not at all. But I think
2: that at a lot of these companies, probably too many people took advantage of that in a way that made it that they made it so that they realized that it can't work that way. I actually think my whole I got theories on this, but uh, I think like a early to mid-stage startup almost can work better remotely where everyone is accountable to each other remotely. It's at a the larger the organization gets, the easier it is for people to kind of skate by and not be accountable because you'll just easily lose yourself in the overall bureaucracy.
0: Now let me give you the wrinkle here, right? Which is that it seems pretty clear to me that people, uh, that these companies are going to apply an uneven standard to their workforces, right? Like the high performer will be able to stay at home and continue working for Mexico City where the rank and file are gonna to have to come in. And I'm curious, like, if you think that that's true and what sort of tension that could cause within a company, oh, no. like, is this actually healthy for companies?
2: Oh, that that's not the way I've been hearing this for the most part.
0: Really? Well, that, yeah, that what have is, you been hearing?
2: I oh, know that this is affecting everyone at every level. And mm. it's actually more often than not, the senior managers that have been going in More regularly to start, and they're the ones pushing it. And that's actually where you get a lot of the pushback is that, you know, if someone who's senior has an easier time, you know, finding a place to live in San Francisco or New York City versus someone who's junior, so their commutes will potentially be shorter and life is easier, so they're able to do this. So I think there's potentially reasonable claims and pushback there but overall i i don't think this is something where you know they're laying off or they're using this to get rid of rank and file i think it's the opposite
0: uh, one of uh, my my core takeaways here is that it's time to buy stock in chipotle because everyone's <laughs> gonna be back in the office everyone's gonna, and be, gonna back be eating chipotle office. for lunch and that yeah. that is Ooh, very I like bullish. this
2: i like this, this maybe is not sweet green comes advice. back maybe sweet green comes back as oh my well. god
0: sweet green is so back it is a technology company we know it this. is a technology <laughs> we know this 60 seconds on the vision pro i got a chance to try it this past weekend in the apple store in brooklyn a few key observations for me first of all there was a tremendous amount of open appointments to come see it i expected to wait online for hours um did not happen and that that to me was was pretty interesting Um, the actual technology itself better than I expected Uh, the actual fidelity of what you see being beamed into your eyes is absolutely incredible Uh, the entertainment is amazing and I personally was like should I buy this thing until I took it off and remembered how much it cost and said all right I'll get the the next generation so I know Ranjan you haven't tried it yet Um, but very briefly are you are you more or less bullish on the vision pro after seeing it out for a week?
2: I am more bullish from talking to people who have bought it. I I actually had an appointment on Thursday after talking to Joanna last week. I wasn't able to make it yesterday, but I I think I'm more bullish. Everyone I'm talking to, the whole idea of like multiple screens and just working again. I think I'm more my take that it is should be proudly an isolating device and that recognize that's what it is I think is going to it might hold some water at least in the near future maybe eventually we end up with you know lean AR glasses that actually fit comfortably and aren't weird but yeah I think and actually I was at a New York Fashion Week show yesterday and I saw someone in the front row wearing a Vision Pro so there's models walking down the runway <laughs> and there's goodness. just some dude with a hoodie looking up and sitting with the Vision Pro so and, and People were pointing it out. People were laughing a little bit about it. I mean, it looked utterly ridiculous, but it did make you wonder is this going to become kind of normal at some point? And again, if they were, I don't know if they're from the company, who they were, if they're filming it in spatial video, and that was the whole point of it, but it looked ridiculous. But now that it's happened once, maybe it's not going to look so ridiculous the next time
0: oh i think it's actually going to be common front row at fashion events sports games you're going to see people walk in and watch these things and then go back and relive it and some yeah. some of those people will be perverted and some of them will just be sports fans or <laughs> business people but that <laughs> well, is happening
2: I, I always keep thinking of we had talked about it on the show a while ago uh, there's that iconic sports photo of uh, everyone holding their phone up when what was it? I think there's some scoring records that are Michael it...
0: Jordan and LeBron score setting records and yeah, everybody was yeah. in the moment with Jordan but not with LeBron.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. they showed Jordan everyone is just looking. LeBron literally <laughs> everyone has their phone out. Yeah, and I think that is the, that's the problem to me that I think the Vision Pro the most interesting part of it is we've all been living kind of halfway between reality and our device in a really uncomfortable way, and I think the Vision Pro is at least the start of recognizing like. Either it's gonna to be totally seamless and we have nice AR glasses that fit well and look okay, or you should be isolated and everyone should look at you as I'm not gonna to talk to you because you have a headset on, but you're just recording the moment.
0: So Ranjan, I'll end with this. Are you going to drive your Cyber Truck with the Vision Pro on or without it on? <laughs> I mean, the only way to, <laughs> oh, maybe for
2: next week, I read something really interesting that Apple, the Vision Pro is really a kind of the tech within it, technology within it, is leading to the Apple car. And it's like the way we experience driving is going to completely change. Maybe for next week, we should get into this one.
0: That is a good teaser. All right, Ranjan, thank you so much. Long one today, but lots of stuff to cover and and great, uh, as always, to get a chance to speak with you. Thanks for being on.
2: Have a good weekend.
0: All right, you too. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Again, my interview with Aravind Srinivas is going to be up on Wednesday. We also have that feed drop of building one on Monday. And then Ranjan and I will be back next week to talk about how potentially we're going to talk about how the Vision Pro is going to change the Apple car and then also everything that happens between now and then. Thanks for listening. and We'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast.